All right, well, open up your Bibles there to the book of Judges. We have made it in our walkthrough of the Old Testament to the dark and depressing days of the Judges. Now, the Judges aren't so much dark and depressing. They're the deliverers. There's a bright spot here in these centuries that Israel lived in the land after Joshua's victories. But what we see in the book of Judges, as you see on your handout, if you take a look at the top of your handout, you see the summary statement there. What we see in the book of Judges is a spiritual tragedy. The tragedy of the book of Judges begins to fulfill the prophecies of Deuteronomy about Israel's unfaithfulness in the land of promise. This repeated cycle of sin, oppression, and deliverance demonstrates Israel's need for a righteous king. Now, one thing I want to say here from the outset is that Israel already had a righteous king, the Lord. We'll see that emphasized throughout the Old Testament, not only in Judges, but also in 1 Samuel, that when God does give the people a king, it's not because they haven't had a king, it's because they haven't been following their king, who is the Lord. And the people needed a mediator between the Lord and the people. They needed a son of God, so to speak, who would be king over the people of Israel, who would do everything that the true king, the the Lord in heaven, wanted to be done for his people that he had redeemed, the people of Israel. And so as we go through the book of Judges and we have the emphasis on the transition from the period of Judges to the kings, as we get to Samuel, keep in mind, that the Lord was king. He was the lawgiver. He was the judge. He was the one who gave them military conquest. He was the one who was leading them spiritually, militarily, in all aspects, and he was the source of their blessings. And so they had the greatest law. They had the greatest king. And all of that was going well so long as Moses was leading the people and Joshua was leading the people. Remember, Moses and Joshua were a team Joshua completed what Moses had begun, and because Moses was an imperfect man, he couldn't get the whole job done himself, but God allowed his understudy, Joshua, to be the one who finished the work of bringing all of God's good promises to the patriarchs to pass, not only bringing them out of Egypt, not only giving them the law, entering into a covenant with them, but than giving them the land of promise, which was such a key part and is still a key part of God's promises to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. So what we started with all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15 and 17 and the repeated promises of the Abrahamic covenant, that still is what is guiding the story all the way through. God introduced the key theme there at the beginning and now it continues to play out just as God said it would, with that major emphasis on God's faithfulness and mankind's unfaithfulness, and mankind here being represented by Israel, God's people. So, once again, just uh, to reemphasize that opening paragraph, the spiritual tragedy of the book of Judges begins to fulfill the prophecies of Deuteronomy about Israel's unfaithfulness in the land of promise. There's a repeated cycle throughout the book of sin, oppression, and deliverance, which demonstrates Israel's need for a righteous king. All right, so this is the bridge between the book of Joshua and the book of Samuel. Remember, originally Samuel was one book. It was divided around the time that the Bible was translated into Greek. And so we're here in the former prophets, 
Judges, Samuel, Kings. Uh, did I leave one out? Oh yeah, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings are the four former prophets. And then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. This is the part of the Bible called the prophets, or in Hebrew, the Nevi'im. And that forms the N in the word Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketovim. So a little bit of review there as then we dive into the outline for the book of Judges this morning, looking at the title, the date, and the authorship. Now here, I think for the first time, we have the title. It's the same in the Hebrew as it is in the Septuagint. Remember the LXX there on your title line stands for the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was the Bible of the Greek-speaking world outside of the land of Israel and became the Bible of the early church for the first few hundred years until Latin took over the Western church and the Latin translation of Jerome, the Vulgate, became the Bible of the church from about 400 to the time of the Reformation when the Bible was then once again translated back into the common language of the people. Interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church with the Latin Vulgate that they were so much protecting that and saying, you know, this is our Bible and we can't have the Bible translated into the language of the common people. But you know what Vulgate means? It means the language of the common people. The vulgar language is the language of the common people. And so they're, they're protecting the Latin, the language of the common people from 300 AD against people who want to translate the Bible into the language of the common people in 1500 AD. So just shows you how sin doesn't make any sense. So, the title, Judges. Same in Hebrew, same in the English that is based upon the Septuagint in our Bibles. The dates that are covered in the book are rather lengthy. For just one short book here, it covers about 300 years. From the death of Joshua, just uh, sometime early in the 14th century B.C. Early in the 14th century is the... 1390s because it's going backwards. So late would be 1301. You've got to think backwards when you're going B.C. So early in the 14th century B.C., you got the death of Joshua. We're not sure exactly when, you know, around 1390, or I think our chart up here will say 1375, to 1055 with the death of Samson, one of the last events recorded in the book of Judges. So that gives you about 300 years. Now, normally when you think of the period of Judges, you think of 400 years. But the book only covers 300 years because you've also got the judgeship of Eli and you've got the judgeship of Samuel. And Samuel judges Israel for quite a long time and and that then leads into the kingship. But Samuel and Eli's judgeships are covered in the book of 1 Samuel. So you've got some extra time here before you actually get to the reign of Saul and David But you can think about 400 years between the death of Joshua and the establishment of the kingdom. But 300 of that is covered here in the book of Judges. Now, the date here of composition is unknown, but we do have some clues. Once again, just as in the book of Joshua, we have this repeated phrase of to this day. So when we read in Joshua, we'd come across lines where it would say, such and such set up this altar, or this place was called after this name, and and that's the way it is to this day, indicating that some significant amount of time had passed from the events that were recorded until the final form of the book of Joshua in our Bibles. Now, certain things in the book of Joshua 
do bear eyewitness marks. Looking and reading in one spot where it referenced, I think, Joshua chapter 5 when they're crossing the Jordan. And the way that it's written, it's written like an eyewitness account. So whoever you know, was the final author of the book of Joshua probably used some eyewitness accounts from the time of Joshua, whether those were written by Joshua or one of the elders that was working with Joshua. We don't know. Interesting to try to go back and look into some of the sources and figure out how the Bible came to be in the form that we have it. But the important thing is, is that the Bible, as we have it, is the intended word of God for us. And so it's not so important that we go back and find the book of Jasher, which is referenced in the book of Joshua, and say, well, we've got to understand the book of Jasher if we're going to really understand the book of Joshua. Now, you don't need it. That's why God didn't save it for us. We don't have the book of Jasher anymore. And it'll be the same way when we get into the books of the Kings. The book of Kings will reference some of his sources They'll say, you can read more about this in, in this book. And we're like, well, we don't have this book. We can't go back and read more about it. And so the important thing is the final form that we have. And the final form of the book of Judges also, like Joshua, took place before David conquered Jerusalem. So to this day appears in chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 15. I gave you the reference for that. But then the key one there is chapter 1, verse 21, which is very similar to what helped us date the latest that the book of Joshua could have been composed. So also in Judges it says, The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, this is Judges 1:21, who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So once again, we know that the book of Judges was written before David conquered the city of Jerusalem, and drove out the Jebusites. So sometime after the period of the Judges, sometimes before David drove out the Jebusites, and we think that the book of Judges was probably written after Saul had become king, maybe even after David had begun to rule, because in the book it also says, in those days there was no king in Israel but every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if in those days they didn't have a king, the implication is, in these days, we do have a king. Yet we know it was very early in the kingdom because Israel, because Jerusalem was not yet captured. So that gives us a pretty clear window about when the book was composed, sometime early in the monarchy, either in the reign of Saul or early in the reign of David, which I would say probably early in the reign of David. All right, so that's the date of composition. The authorship is also unknown, but Jewish tradition identified Samuel as the author. We like to identify a, a prophet that we know as author, and so Samuel is a well-known figure who was writing during that time and would be a good candidate for the book of Judges, but we don't know. Could have been some other prophet who's not mentioned in Scripture. If you like the idea that Samuel is the author of Judges, great. But it's not something we can prove beyond any doubt. And then secondly, let's take a look at the themes in the book. Of course, one of the major themes in the book of Judges are the Judges. And the Judges are referenced throughout the book as to how long they judged the people of Israel. Now, The idea of judges is not new. This is not something that just comes out of the blue and we're surprised by. It should be no surprise that the people who were leading Israel after the death of Joshua and the elders in his day were judges over the people because there's a lot of background in the Pentateuch and also the book of Joshua, the Hexateuch if you prefer, 
a lot of background references to this form of government for the people of Israel. And I think government is interesting. So let's go back and take a look at some of the background of the judges. If you've got your Bible open to judges, go back to Exodus chapter 18, where we have the first reference to how God wants the leadership of his people to function. And this comes through the advice of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, that Moses has been appointed by God to be the deliverer, to be the leader, to be the spokesman, to be God's prophet. And yet, when you're leading two million people, that's a lot. And if you've got one pastor with a congregation of two million, you might need some other pastors. You might need some help. And that's what Jethro shows up here. And he says, Moses, you're trying to do too much. You can't do everything. You need to appoint some elders in the congregation. And so Jethro, you see in verse 1, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. So you go into a dangerous mission, Pharaoh wants to kill you, you leave your family at home for that, and then once this threat is over, you bring the family back. And so he comes with his wife and his sons. Then you have their meeting there. Let's pick it up in verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. So he's got all these cases, and then, you know, he's got this backlog of cases. He can't do everything. He's hearing one at a time, and there's like 700 in the backlog. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. You've got the big judge and then the little judge, all the way down to a group of ten families. And so this is wise counsel that is being given. Let them, notice what it says, judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also go to their place in peace. And so that's what Moses does. He sets up the judges, they judge the cases, anything that's too difficult for them they bring to Moses. All right, so that's the beginning of judges in Israel. Come also then to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. I do this not only because it's interesting history, but also because I think it is applicable to the church. We are a family, like Israel was a family. We're a spiritual family, not a physical family. And that God expects us to be able to judge matters within our family. The Bible says in the New Testament, do any of you dare to go to court with one another before the unbelievers? 
You don't take another believer to court. There's righteous people here that can judge between one and another and tell you what's right and what you need to do. And that's what God expects us as Christians to do. He expects us to settle our own affairs and not be going to court with one another. And so judging is a big part of living together as a family. And God appoints men, like he did here, who hate a bribe, who are righteous, who fear God, who are wise and know the scriptures, to be able to judge in these matters. So I think there's application here to the New Testament church in looking at the judges in Israel. All right, so the next one is Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 through 17. Here the people are complaining, as they often do. And Moses heard the weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. So complaining gets God angry. It upsets Moses. And Moses complains. He says, you know, I didn't conceive all these people. I didn't give birth to them in verse 12. Why do I have to care for all of these people? I think all leaders feel that from time to time. And in verse 14, he says, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And so I don't know if things had degraded from when they appointed judges, and now maybe some of the judges aren't doing the work and it's falling back on Moses. I don't know. And so Moses decides his life isn't worth living there in verse 15. And I suppose all leaders have felt like that from time to time as well. And then it says in verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. So that's what they do. 600,000 people on foot are the number there in verse 21. That's why we come up with the number of 2 million. You've got 600,000 men, and you've got the women and children. You've got probably at least 2 million people here. They do that in verse 24. He gathers the 70 men, and then the Lord comes down, and he puts the Spirit on these men. They prophesy. And so this is another example of communal leadership, multiple leaders doing the work of shepherding the people, and that involves judging as well. You come to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and there we have a rehearsal of these things. Just look briefly here, since this is basically just a repetition of what we already looked at. In verse 16, Moses says, I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. So, once again, judging is a key role of the leaders of Israel. And Moses gives great instructions to the judges. And this continues... Chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. This is worth looking at because we get this idea that, well, these judges just kind of came out of nowhere. No, the judging was already happening during the time of Moses, during the time of Joshua. It's something that continues. And the judges who are focused on in the book of Judges, they are the ones that kind of become the head judge, or not just necessarily of the whole nation, but of regions. And so you get certain regions of Israel that are oppressed by foreigners, and God raises this judge up who is a military leader to defeat Israel's enemies, but he's functioning in this role of 
a leader like they had during the times of Moses and Joshua, and one of their key roles is to judge cases between Israelites according to God's law. So let's see, Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. Here, God commands the people, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The emphasis on justice, righteousness, before the law, there for the judges. And they're supposed to have judges throughout all of their clans, throughout all of their towns, so don't think, that well, there's 12 judges in the book of Judges, and that's all Israel ever had was 12 judges for 300 years. There's 12 judges that are talked about who are military leaders and deliverers, but there's probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of judges throughout this time period in all the different towns and villages. These are the elders of the towns. These are the leaders of the people. And then the one who is, kind of rises up to be a leader among the leaders, well, those are the ones who are talked about as judges in the book of Judges. But there'd be lots of other minor judges in each town and clan and all of that. Also in the book of Joshua. So I think you get the idea. We can probably move on from the background of the judges in the Torah and the book of Joshua also mentions the importance of these judges. So the second important theme in the book of Judges is this cycle of failure. You've got Israel's sin, then Israel's servitude, then Israel's supplication, then Israel's salvation, and then Israel's security. So you like alliteration, we've got it there for you. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, security. And the security is just temporary because then they fall back into sin and fall back into servitude, which is the consequences of their sin according to the law. Remember the covenant that God made with Israel. You obey me, you worship me, then I will bless you and you will have military victory and you won't have diseases or famines or drought or any of that type of thing. But if you disobey me, then you're going to get all the curses of the law, which include being subjected to foreign armies. And that's what the book of Judges is all about, the subjection to foreign armies because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant. So let's go again to Judges chapter 2. We began to look at this last week. Judges chapter 2 informs us of the tragic cycle of this failure in Israel, starting there in verse 11. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This may not be evil in the sight of people, but it's evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's what really matters. It doesn't matter what people think is evil. What matters is what does God think is evil. And God thinks that serving idols and worshiping other gods is very, very evil. And you know what? He's right. And he's wiser than people who don't see how evil it is. And not only is it a great sin against God, but it also leads to all the sins of man against man. And as people stop worshiping the Lord and fearing the Lord, then we also start stealing and cheating and lying and murdering and, and all that type of thing that you see filling our society because we no longer fear the Lord and we're trying to be good without God and we're doing a lousy job of it. So the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That's where the root of sin comes from, this false worship. You worship falsely, you become false. So they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Like the Philistines who captured the ark at the beginning of the book of Samuel, which is still during the period of the judges because Eli was a judge. He judged Israel for like 40 years. And at the end of his judgeship, the evil sons of Eli were killed in battle. The ark was captured, all because the people of Israel were still worshiping idols and their priests were treating the things of the Lord in the tabernacle with contempt. And so Israel's sin led to their subjugation and God handed them over to their enemies. That was all part of the Philistine capture of the ark that we looked into God's word last Sunday from the pulpit. So, That is the cycle of sin there and then the cycle of servitude that follows upon it as they are handed over to their enemies. Remember what the Philistines said when they heard that the ark of God had come into the camp of the Israelites? They said, fight like men, Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Israelites like they have been slaves to you. So the Israelites were enslaved to these foreign oppressors because of their sin and idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. God had handed them over to this servitude, the consequences of their sin. Now, in verse 18, you see, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Notice this last part. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So, God has a righteous fury and an anger against Israel, but he also has mercy and pity and compassion for the people of Israel. So he knows how to mix together judgment with mercy. And that's what you see throughout the Old Testament scriptures is is God judging the people for their sins while also showing them mercy. This goes back to the time of Moses when the people made the golden calf. And God judged the people of Israel for their sin with the golden calf and thousands of people died. And yet God spared the congregation as a whole. And he didn't wipe out Israel and start over with Moses because Moses interceded for the people. And so the people pray or Moses prays for them and God is moved to pity, he's moved to compassion by the suffering of his people because of their sin. They're suffering because of their sin and they're saved because of God's mercy, because of God's compassion. That's a universal principle. People suffer because of sin, and we're saved because of God's mercy, because of God's compassion. That's still the way it is today. So Israel's sin, their servitude, their supplication, you see at the end of verse 18. Their salvation, as it says there, is in verse 16. So a little bit out of order, but the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And then Israel's temporary security, also we read in verse 18, when God saved them from the hand of their enemies, it was for all the days of that judge. So there'd be a period of security underneath this deliverer, this judge that God had sent to the people of Israel, but that was only temporary. And as soon as that judge died, as soon as they didn't have a strong leader, then they went right back into their old ways. So what you see here is the the people of Israel, without a strong leader, they're not faithful to God, and they can't stand against their enemies. So this kind of points to the fact that they need a righteous king, a strong leader who is going to give them victory over their enemies, but also lead them in God's will and keep them faithful to the Lord. And that's what God gives them with David, a man after my own heart. So whoever wrote the book of Judges right before David conquered Jerusalem was aware 
that God had appointed David to be king and that this was God's mercy, God's grace upon the people of Israel, that he was giving them a righteous leader who would be able to keep them on track. And the Davidic covenant has that promise of David's seed, David's descendant. See, the thing that's different between a king and a judge, well, a kingship is hereditary. You pass it down to your son. A judgeship is not hereditary, at least not supposed to be. You don't pass it down to your son. But with a king, it's hereditary. And so a king, if it's a righteous king with a righteous son, you've got that long-lasting leadership, that long-lasting stability. And sadly, of course, David's descendants don't do a great job of being like David. And that's the standard by which they're judged. As you read through Kings, he was not like his father David. He was unfaithful. And this is more like Jeroboam or Rehoboam. And so this is all setting us up for the promise that comes in the latter prophets of the son of David, the righteous king who's going to reign forever, leading, of course, to the New Testament. So it's great studying the Old Testament and seeing the big idea, the theme, and, and what it's all driving towards so that we get further confidence that the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly right that it's not that the disciples came up with this new thing that took Judaism in a different direction, but no, that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, and he still is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, and everything was pointing to him, and we can show that to Jewish people or non-Jewish people from the text of Scripture so that all the world is held accountable, and all the world should know that Jesus is God's Christ. He is the King of Israel. And he is the one that God has given the inheritance of all the nations to. And so we recognize that and we bow to him and we worship him as our Lord. We obey his law in our hearts. And so we're ready for the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awesome how you see scripture come together as a whole. That's why I love Old Testament survey. Let's take one other cycle in the book of Judges here also. Let's go to chapter 6. Let's look at the cycle there in chapter 6. So here you've got Midian oppressing Israel. And it says there in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, there's the this first step in the cycle, Israel's sin. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. There's the servitude, okay? And it continues on describing their servitude in the, in the next five verses as well. And then you get Israel's supplication in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, well, then the Lord sent a prophet. And so they have their sin, they have their servitude, they have their supplication, and now God is going to send them salvation in the person of Gideon. So you come down to verse 14, and the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Of course, Gideon is not real keen on this idea. He doesn't think this is going to work out. And so God has to show Gideon, just like God had to show Moses, that it's not you, but it's me. I'm the one that's sending you. I'm the one that's going to save Israel. So go do what I tell you to do. And then you come to the end of these three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, on Gideon and his salvation of Israel. And you see in verse 28, that last part of the cycle, Israel's security during the judgeship of Gideon. Chapter 8, verse 28 says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So rebellion, if you want to use the R's, I don't know what would be a good R for being conquered by other nations or ruled over by other nations. Ruled. So you've got your rebellion, and then they're ruled, and then God gives them rest through the judges. 
That's the cycle that we see there in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 13. Of course, you know, sometimes there's a, a gap between the security, the death of the judge, the summary of the period of peace, and the beginning of the stories about that judge, particularly with Gideon, who has three chapters, and also Samson, who has three chapters. That's why there's that gap there between 13.5 and 16.31, on Israel's salvation and Israel's security at the end of Samson's life. So, all of this points to, as we said, the need for a righteous king. And this is highlighted by the repetition in Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25 of that famous phrase in the book of Judges. This is our third point on the themes. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the judges are not working out. The people of Israel are not following God's law. Their judges are not doing a great job of leading them in their towns and in their regions. And so what is God going to do? He's given them 300 years to try to figure out how to live under God's law, the way that God set it up, and they're not getting the point. In fact, they're probably getting worse. It seems like the cycle that they go down a little bit further each time in this cycle. And so God is going to have to do something amazing to bring the people out of this death spiral that they're in. They're being Canaanized. They're becoming more and more like the Canaanites and less and less like what God commanded them to be in the Torah. And so the capture of the ark And the redemption of the ark and the coming of Samuel as this mighty prophet is kind of a new beginning for the people of Israel at the end of the book of Judges. And this new beginning then is going to lead to them getting David as their king. And this leads to the high point of the kingdom of Israel. So very interesting how God set up the whole story. And that's how we've got to look at it. We've got to look at the big story and recognize that you don't judge the story when you're in the middle of it. You judge the story at the end of it and you find out what was it all about. And sometimes you're in the middle of the story and you're confused and you don't know why things are going the way that they are and that's the way it is with your own life. You can look at where you are in your life sometimes and say, God, why is this happening and why is that happening and this doesn't seem right and this isn't how it should have been. And you just need to stop and say, well, I'm not at the end of the story yet. I've got to wait and see what God has planned because there might be some big turnaround. There might be something amazing just around the corner that is going to be used to honor God and glorify God, and that's really the point. Your comfort, your happiness is not the point of the world. God's glory is the point of the world, and you have a role. You have a part to play in that, and your individual part plays into a much bigger part. And your part plays into the story of this church. And this church plays into the story of the church in America. And this church in America plays a part in the church in the world. And and God's telling a story about the church from the first century until the 21st century and however long Christ comes back. And we've got to play our part in that story and see the big picture. Don't get so caught up with the little things that you don't see the big picture. That's what the Old Testament survey does for us. It helps us step back and see God was working over centuries. You know, for the Jews who were living in Egypt in the second hundred, you know, 200 years into their slavery, they're probably wondering, what's going on here? Why are we slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years? Well, because it's not about you. It's about God telling his story. And his story is, is that he's going to redeem a people who have been enslaved in Egypt. And so you get to be the people who are enslaved in Egypt. Yay, good for you. You get a great part in the story. 
you know, much rather I would have lived during the time of David. Wouldn't that have been a better time for me to be a part of God's story? Well, God had people who were destined to be a part of that part of the story as well. And so you have a part in God's story. And you play your part well, or you play your part badly, and that all is going to be factored into the story that God is telling as well. All right, so let's look at the outline for the book. The structure, the outline, although I I did need to mention the purpose. The purpose of the book is, in the period between Joshua and the monarchy, Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh illustrates the need for a righteous king. Have we driven that point home? You got that, and you go home, and you're asked... What's the point of the book of Judges? Between Joshua and the kingdom, the united monarchy, Israel's unfaithful to the Lord, showing their need for a righteous king. All right, so then the outline, the structure of the book. I've given you a three-part outline with an introduction and an epilogue, and then in between, the main part of the book, chapters 3 through 16, the cycles of failure. Now, when you look at the introduction of the book, chapters 1 and 2, it divides nicely into two parts. Chapter 1 is about the incomplete conquest. So Joshua was all about the conquest. And so Judges starts with the conquest and shows how it was incomplete. And this sets up the people of Israel for this period of failure where they're going to be harassed by all the nations that are still around them and in the land because they were not completely faithful to God's command to take the land that he had given to them. So there's that incomplete conquest of the land in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 talks about their spiritual failure with the idolatry and worshiping the gods that we read that starts these cycles of failure. So that first two chapters just set the stage. Okay, here's the people around who they should have gotten rid of but are now going to be a problem for them, and God's going to allow these people to be a problem because of their spiritual unfaithfulness, their idolatry. And then you see judge after judge, 12 judges, Seven of them are focused on in the book, in the cycle of failure, in chapters 3 through 16. And then, chapters 17 through 21, you get what is called the epilogue, where you see the low state that Israel has come to with their idolatry, with their immorality, and their civil war that takes place there in these chapters. So that helps you see the outline, and I also, as we have been doing, I got Swindoll's outline up here for us. And there's a lot of detail on Swindoll's outline. He includes all the different nations that are ruling over Israel, from the Philistines here at the end during the time of Samson, which is then picked up in the book of Samuel, the Philistines. But we've got the Ammonites backing up to Abimelech, the Midianites, which we read about with Gideon there in chapter 6, the Canaanites, whom they should have driven out from the land, the Moabites, and even Mesopotamia here during the time of Othniel, early in the book. And then you see that chapters 3 through 16, just like the outline I gave you, is this cycle of disobedience, bondage, misery, liberation, and then back to sin, compromising with their culture. And that canonization, that compromise from being faithful to God's word to being like the nations around them is the theme that Swindoll brings out. This compromise brings failure. If we become like the world, and we don't obey Christ from the heart, then we also will experience failure in the New Covenant, just as Israel experienced failure in the Old Covenant. In different ways, we're not a nation who's out there fighting wars, but we are fighting spiritual wars, and if we're compromised, we will lose the spiritual wars, and the church will degrade, as it has done throughout its history as well. The key verses there about the no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, those are the key verses. 
And then I like the defeat, the disobedience, and the disgrace there. The three parts with the introduction, the cycles, and then the epilogue here. So if that is helpful, you can get a good big picture of these seven judges, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, and Samson, and the cycles that are there. So that is the book of Judges in the outline. Now, we've got uh, 10 minutes left to talk about the interpretive issues in the book of Judges. The first one is the chronology of the book. Now, if you add up all these dates of how many years they were suffering and how many years they had peace, and you, you do all that throughout the book of Judges, you end up with too many years. It's longer than it should have been. And so people have been critical of the history of Judges, and they've said, well, the book of Judges is not actual historical fact because when you add up all the years, it's more than the actual time period. Even if you're taking an earlier or a late date of the Exodus, it doesn't work out if you just add up the years. And the problem here is with the premise. The, the premise is that one judge followed after another judge and that there's no overlap in their judgeships. And that is not what the text is trying to communicate to us. When it says that he ruled over Israel, it doesn't necessarily mean he meant all of Israel, but over a large part of it. And when you go through and you look at a map, I should have brought one with me for the PowerPoint, but if you go through and you look at a map of you know, which countries were oppressing Israel and where the judge raised, was raised up, it's all over Israel, from the north down to the south. All different parts of Israel are covered. So what the author of the book is trying to do is he's trying to show that this is a universal problem among all of Israel and that each area of Israel was oppressed by someone and that each area of Israel had deliverers. It's not supposed to be comprehensive. It's more representative of how all of Israel was oppressed at one time or another. All of Israel had been unfaithful and yet God had done this work through all the different tribes through these different judges. And so there's overlap The judgeship of Samson might have had some overlap with the judges of Jephthah. You don't just add them up, but factor in that there's an an overlap in the chronology and that takes care of that problem that people have had with the book of Judges. Secondly, the ethical issue in the book of Judges is Jephthah's vow. And this is a thorny issue in the book and one that we should take a look at. If you turn in your Bibles to chapter 11, that's where we have Jephthah's foolish vow. Let's take a look at it there in its context, Judges chapter 11. So the whole chapter is devoted to Jephthah, but there when you come to verse 29 in the ESV, you've got a new section heading with the title, Jephthah's Tragic Vow. So let's start there in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering." I don't know what he was expecting to come out of his door to to meet him when he made this vow, if he had a dog that he really liked. I don't know. Seems like a really stupid thing to say. And uh, yet he said it. And so whatever comes out of my door will be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. 
So he crosses over, and the Ammonites are given into his hand, and you come down to verse 34. Jephthah came home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So, the verse here, the key verse, verse 39, says that he did with her according to his vow. And what was his vow? Well, his vow was, I will offer her up as a burnt offering. And so it seems like what the text is saying is that Jephthah offered up his daughter as a burnt offering sacrifice to the Lord, which is really bad. And that's like really weird because the Bible is very clear that we don't do human sacrifice. Maybe you burn your child to Molech if you're some kind of evil pagan, but God doesn't want children burned as sacrifices on his altar. And so the question comes up, is that how we're supposed to take the text, that Jephthah actually did this human sacrifice? Or is it possible that we're supposed to read, well, of course he didn't do the human sacrifice, but instead he dedicated her to the Lord? and that she you know, went and served at the temple, and she never got married, and that she was weeping over her virginity, but that she wasn't burned as a, a human sacrifice. And so you could see how you could you know, make a case for either one of those. You say, well, obviously they didn't offer her up as a burnt sacrifice. That uh, must have been that they just dedicated her to the Lord at the temple or something like that. But, I don't know, you can also make the case that the text says... He did to her according to his vow, and his vow was to offer her up for a burnt sacrifice. So it's, it's how do you read it? And I don't have a problem with either reading. I think there's a good argument to be made for either case. If you ask me personally, I think that he offered her up as a burnt sacrifice. I, I think that's the most natural way of reading the text. When you're looking at a text like this, it's a history, it's an account of what happened. It's not saying what he should have done. It's not saying this was the right thing to do. There's a lot of times in the Bible where the Bible records what happened, and it was not at all what God wanted to happen. And it's obvious from the rest of Scripture that it's not what God wanted to happen, but it is what happened. And I think that's the case here. I think what happened was Jephthah made a foolish vow. He was a man of extremely strong conscience, (laughs) and he thought that the right thing to do was to keep his vow and it was the wrong thing to do, but he didn't know that, and he did what he thought was the right thing to do, and it's a tragedy. It's another tragic incident in this tragic book of the judges. 
that the judges themselves were severely flawed men. And we shouldn't look at the judges and think of them as, as these paragons of virtue. Samson is a great example of just the opposite of that. He's the least virtuous, probably, of the judges. And so God uses unworthy men, and many tragic things were happening in Israel because they didn't know the Lord, including the judges that were not walking close with the Lord and didn't have wisdom that they should have had in dealing with a situation like this. However, if you read it and you say, that, well, there's no way that that's what happened, obviously the text is signifying when she's mourning for her virginity, that she's mourning that she's been dedicated to serve the Lord at the temple and that she's never going to get to be married. If you want to read it that way, I'm not going to try to argue you out of it. I don't think there's a problem with taking that interpretation. It's just not the one that I am inclined to when I try to be honest with the text. Yeah, it shows you the complexity of the people. And I think that's one of the things that's great about the Bible is it shows people as they are in their complexity and doesn't whitewash them, but we see their tragic flaws as well as their faith. And that's the way most people are. You're going to see most people who have faith they also have tragic flaws, and that's why we have to be patient with one another, we have to love one another, and we have to keep on pursuing wisdom and righteousness as a group so that we don't get to dark places like this. Well, one verse that I want to look at here in conclusion is back in Deuteronomy. So go back to Deuteronomy once again, chapter 6. We started off by saying that the book of Judges begins to fulfill the tragic prophecies of Israel's unfaithfulness in the land of promise. And so I want to show you one of those here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. It says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So there's the warning. And it's repeated throughout the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy ends with prophecies that when they get into the land, they are going to worship the other gods and fall away from the Lord. And so that's the tragic cycle of the book of Judges. And yet God is faithful, and he's compassionate, he raised up deliverers, and he's leading them to the king, who is, of course, the type of the King of Kings, who is the hope not only of Israel, but of all nations.